Everyone in this world is going to experience pain, but pain and suffering are two different things. Pain is an instantaneous biochemical reaction that takes place inside our anatomy. Suffering, on the other hand, is the inability to let go of that pain after we've experienced it. When you suffer, what that means is you are going back constantly thinking about it, dwelling on it, or projecting into the future about whenever you might encounter that thing again, or whenever that thing might get worse, whatever it is, it completely takes you out of the present moment. So a lot of that stuff, what we're doing, even if it doesn't manifest in some horrendous way in an external you know, manifestation, it's still going to have internal repercussions. It's going to strengthen and thicken the denseness of our ego, which makes us suffer even more. That is Damien Eccles. And this is episode 289 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 289 of the show with Damien Eccles. Yeah, Damien Eccles from the West Memphis Three. He's on the show today. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, D-A-M-I-E-N-E-C-H-O-L-S. You can find him there. And his brand new book is called High Magic, A Guide to the Spiritual Practices That Saved My Life on Death Row. I've read it. It's a cracking read. It's a stunning exploration into things that you maybe haven't ever explored before, and it'll definitely make you think, which is good because that's what this show's here to do. Um, if you've never listened to this show before, if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Um, what is this podcast? It's simply uh, a conversation that is designed to hopefully help you make today better than yesterday. Just something in the next hour and a bit, you'll hear and go, oh, that's interesting. I might, I might, yeah, I'll think about things a little differently next time that happens to me. Yeah, that's it. That's all we're here to do. We've been doing it for the last 288 weeks, which is a long time by now. Um, if you don't me, hi, you don't know me, hi, my name's Osher. I'm a, a, a white male person from Sydney, Australia, where I live with my wife and my stepdaughter and our soon-to-come baby. Um, I host television shows. I write books. Um, I swing kettlebells. I ride bikes. I clean garages, and I put things on Gumtree. And I love putting things on Gumtree. It's really good. If you're listening overseas, Gumtree is like an auction site. It's owned by eBay, but I think people just come and pick stuff up from your house, and it's awesome because you don't have to then throw it in landfill. Anyway, a big thank you very much to um, people that uh, listen to the show on Fridays. I don't have a guest on Friday, but I do have a podcast on Friday. And thank you very much for the folks that do listen to the shows on Fridays. The numbers are massive, and um, that really means a lot that you do that. And thank you, everybody, as well, for uh, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. That is an enormous help if you do rate and review the show on iTunes. It really helps more people find out about the show and certainly helps us when we are searching for for guests to have on the show because uh, publicists look at the iTunes charts. So I know you listen on Spotify and Google. Many, I listen to podcasts on Spotify and Google, but iTunes charts is where they look. So uh, in an effort to get more people to rate and review on iTunes, here are some people that rated and review on iTunes. Um, 11 out of 10 from Cassie. Great podcast, great person, great outcomes, a truly engaging and thought-provoking podcast that if everyone listened to at least one episode would make the world a better place. Thank you very much. And uh, one from Dion. I had no idea. 
These podcasts were the high quality brain food while I physically trained and studied to achieve another amazing career goal. I worked with Osha for many years on Australian Idol and had no idea he was doing it hard. It had opened up my eyes that sometimes the people close to you need help but never ask. Now I really look out for my mates. Dion. Ah, oh, Dion. Dion and I were, he was a cameraman, a very hardworking cameraman, an extraordinary cameraman. He went to Iraq right at the first invasion in 2003. Amazing guy. Um, thanks for listening, Dion. That's super cool. And Claudia from the Sunny Coast uh, wrote, a little gem in every episode. I've been listening to this podcast weekly for the past six months. I love it. Every episode provides a little something that makes me think, changes my mind, and something to incorporate in my daily life. Offers Osher's authenticity, shines through, and he has a unique, compassionate way of communicating with guests. Thank you, everybody, for writing such wonderful things. Hi, Dion. Uh, it really makes a big difference if you do rate and review the show. So thank you so much for that. If you do need me at all, though, um, if you can't, don't want to communicate through that, uh, you can always get me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, let me tell you about my guest today. Damien Eccles is an author, activist, and ceremonial magician from the United States, and he was one of the West Memphis Three. Uh, West Memphis Three was an incredibly famous case, basically about the miscarriage of justice. Along with two other people, Damien was falsely convicted of the murder of three eight-year-old boys. And there's plenty of documentaries and, you know, then dramas that were made about what happened to these people and certainly about the case. But uh, to give you, if you've seen Making a Murderer, then you've got a pretty close idea of what went on in that courtroom. At barely 18 years old, Damien Eccles was sentenced to death and he ended up spending 18 years and 78 days on death row. I'm 45 years old, so if you are five years either side of my age, so if you're like in your 50s or in your 30s, you'll remember nearly every band that you liked getting involved in the activism around getting these three men out of jail, which ended up happening 
In 2011, the West Memphis Three were released from prison as a part of a plea deal. Since then, Damien has been adjusting to life back in the world. Can you imagine going to prison and then 18 years later coming out? Like, what's a smartphone? It's extraordinary what he's had to deal with. Um, since then, he's been doing that. He's been writing many, many books. He's uh, flung himself into being a, an author and he's done, doing incredibly well. His latest book is called High Magic, A Guide to the Spiritual Practices That Saved My Life on Death Row. Now, you know me, I like to do the work. I like to do the work every day to make sure that I can get through my day. And while what worked for Damien isn't exactly something that I might try in a hurry, it worked for him. It brought him peace. It brought him deliverance from the crushing mental load of waking up every day in prison for a crime you didn't commit, wondering if today is the day you are going to be executed. So I listened. I listened to what he had to say. I read his book. And I certainly hope you listen and, and get some of the wisdom that this man who has gone to the very limits of, of holding it together as a human being has gone to just so he can come back and tell us how he survived. Incredible injustice, incredible stress, incredible dehumanization, dehumanization. It's an extraordinary story. This conversation is fantastic. I'm so grateful I get to have it today. Um, the other thing I do want to tell you about is that we connected on, on Skype from very, very far away. Now, sometimes on this podcast, not everything works as well as it shouldn't. We worked very hard. We work very, very hard to make sure that the audio is always awesome. But I do have redundancies when I record, just in case. And thankfully, in this instance, this is I think this is the first time I've had to do it. Um, I had to use the redundancy recording because the original feed from my microphone got lost along the way. Uh, Andy, my audio producer, tried very, very hard to, to salvage that. But um, it while Damien was talking to me over his phone, You'll hear me as if I'm also over the phone. Now, I apologize for that. It's not the greatest audio quality from my end, but I would rather bring the conversation to you as it was rather than re-record my bits. Ha ha, that's good, Damien. I, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to remain authentic to the conversation and the flow of the conversation. So it, you, it's going to sound like listening to a phone call. And I have to also say a massive thank you to Rachel Barrett, my producer, who managed to track down Damien and find a space in his incredibly busy schedule so that he and I could have this conversation. Rachel really is the best there is, and we are thrilled to get Damien on the show. I, you'll hear me lord over Damien a, a little bit because if you were like me, if you grew up in the 90s, uh, the early 2000s, the, the case of the West Memphis Three, the injustice that these men faced and what it meant for everyone because they, they were just kids who read Stephen King books, who wore metal shirts, and the cops in the town just pointed at these kids and went, clearly, you're into stuff that we don't understand, so therefore you did this horrible crime. And they got put away for it. But thankfully, they're out. And um, it's extraordinary that we can have this conversation. So normally, I would invite you to come and sit around my kitchen table with me and my guest to enjoy a cup of tea and a chat. But today, I'll invite you to jump on a conference call with you, me, and Damien Eccles. A very good morning from Sydney, Australia, Damien. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. Thank you so much for having me. It really means a lot, you know, to someone, certainly somewhat of my generation. I mean, we're the same age by only a couple of months apart, mate. So, you know, I, like millions of people around the world, followed your journey. And to be able to speak to you today is an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary honor, man. I'm really, really grateful for it. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's kind of, it's one of those strange things where, 
you know, when I was in prison, by far the most letters that I received were from people in the U.S., but the second highest amount that I would receive were always from Australians. What do you think that would be? What is it that about your story and the particular injustice that you faced, you think, that resonated with people out here? I think a, a lot of people just whenever they saw the documentaries, and, and I think, you know, there were other ways that people found out about it, you know, through websites and, and books and what have you. But I think by far the most people found out about it from the documentaries. And I think whenever they saw them, I think they saw a lot of themselves in it. You know, I think a lot of people on some level sort of feel like they never quite fit into society, like they never were completely accepted or, you know, they never were completely like everyone else. So almost everyone in, in some way or another has experienced that sensation of not quite belonging. And I think that's what they saw whenever they saw those documentaries. And what, what happened to you was so frightening to someone who read Stephen King books, owned Metallica T-shirts and doodled pentagrams in his math book. You know, what <laughs> I, you know these, these are things that you did and these are things that were seen by, I guess, these people. I would describe them, I've never met them, but I would describe them as nothing short of fundamentalists who saw that as evidence of, well, clearly, this is guilt. And, uh, you know, that if any of us were in your situation, we, we, it could have been us. Yeah. Fundamentalist is the perfect word to describe them. That's exactly what they were. And, you know, a lot of people that are, you know, younger than us, you know, people who are in their 20s or even their 30s now that hear about this sort of thing, they think it only happened to me. They don't realize that there was a huge sort of movement underway in America at the time. You know, this was around the same time whenever you had people saying that teenagers were committing suicide because Ozzy Osbourne was putting you know, backwards subliminal lyrics into his albums that were telling them to commit suicide. I mean, this was a very, very widespread thing across, you know, the entire country at the time. Damien, I'm, I'm faced with some challenges in my life. I have, uh, you know, most people my age have the same things. I've got mortgage, I've got school fees, I've got the chance my contract won't get renewed next year, so I don't know how I'll pay those bills. But none of these things come close to what you went through. None of these things kind of hold a candle to what it would be to be on death row for just over 18 years. But I can learn from your experiences to what kind of things that you did every day to keep it together and indeed ultimately create a positive outcome for you out of what was nothing short of a hellish existence. And uh, the, the book is called High Magic, A Guide to the Spiritual Practices That Saved My Life on death row and I, I definitely want to get into that because I talk on this show a lot about doing the work and doing the work every day. I'm someone in recovery. I'm also someone who not only from alcoholism, but I went through episodes of psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusion. So I, I do have to do an amount of work every day to keep my head above water. And that's, I think what I resonated most with in your book is the daily practice and the ritualism of, of the daily practice to keep your head together. But I, I wouldn't want to bring anything up that's going to, be difficult for you, but I would like to paint a bit of a picture for people of what it was that you were in that you had to then rise above, if that's okay. Of course. Thank you, mate. You spent 18 years and 78 days on, on death row, the part of the prison where you wait for your day, I'm guessing. Exactly. Yes. Was there such a thing as a typical day? Yes and no. You know, it's kind of hard to describe just because Somebody, and I can't remember who it was, but they once described prison as an environment where 
you are bored out of your mind and at the same time having constant adrenaline surges because you are living in an environment where nothing ever happens, yet at the same time, anything can happen at any moment. And so you're talking about a typical day, you know, you're still experiencing like horrendous amounts of trauma on just a typical day because you're undergoing a situation that, I mean, we now know is torture. You know, for example, the last eight years of the almost 20 years that I was in there, I spent in solitary confinement. So, you know, we now classify that in the U.S. We now know that is torture because it has horrendously detrimental effects to your psyche, things that we didn't even know were happening to me at the time. You know, for example, whenever I got out, we didn't realize that being in solitary confinement for that long literally affects the way your brain is hardwired. So I had lost abilities like facial recognition, voice recognition, you know, things that we never even a million years would have thought about while I was in there. So you're going through things like that that you don't even realize you're going through on top of the blatantly obvious torture and trauma, you know, things like being beaten, things like, you know, there were times when I was starving, you know, for a while, I thought I was losing my hair. I thought I was going bald because my hair was just falling out. It got incredibly thin and brittle. And then whenever I got out and I started being able to eat real food again and was exposed to sunlight, I realized, oh, I wasn't actually losing my hair at all. It was just falling out because of malnutrition, you know, lack of nutrition. So you are in a cell 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The only time that you are allowed to see anyone else, once a week, uh, you're allowed to have one visitor for three hours. And that's pretty much it. Anytime you see anyone other than that, it's going to be a, a guard who's doing something like either giving you your tray through a slot in the door or handing you your mail or whenever they come in to try to hurt you in some sort of way. You know, it's like there really is no typical day in there. Being that you're in solitary confinement, you're not exposed to other people. You're not exposed to, you know, any sort of outside stimulus. It's like everything bleeds together. You know, noon is the same as midnight. Christmas is the same as the 4th of July. You know, there's no difference in anything. It's just one long eternal now. I can't even picture what that must have been like, but it, it sounds utterly horrifying and, and so dehumanizing. And you talk in the book about that you were, your name was taken away from you and you were given a number. And there's this one sentence that really hit me that because you were given a number, it dehumanized you to allow the people whose job it was to shuffle you around and move you around that they could then do anything to you because you were no longer a person. And I can't imagine what that realization must have been like for you. Exactly. To the state of Arkansas, the day that I walked in the door of the prison, I ceased being Damian Eccles and became SK-931. That meant that I was the 931st person sentenced to die by the state of Arkansas. And to them, that was the sum of my existence. I was not a person. I had no family. I was not part of even the human race. I was just SK-931 someone who was on the conveyor belt to move a little closer to the execution chamber with, with each passing day. In the first few years, I would say the first two to three years that I was there, it makes you incredibly angry, furious. You know, from, from the moment that I woke up in the morning, I would think, 
these people have no right to do this to me. I'm not supposed to be here. And what happened whenever I started to feel that way, I started to grow more and more angry, more and more bitter. And then not only was I in this external hell, but I had an internal hell going on at the same time. And it was making me, there are, there's no words to even describe or, or articulate the kind of person it starts to turn you into. And I saw, you know, people going through that process all around me, and I didn't want to be like that. I didn't want to become one of those people. I didn't want to succumb to that sort of thing. So I knew I had to do the opposite of what everyone else in there was doing. And usually what most people do in there is the moment they walk in the door, they cease growing. They no longer develop. They no longer progress along the path of becoming growing in any sort of way. They, they will sit there. And 10 years down the, the road, they will be the exact same person they were whenever they walked in. I knew I had to keep growing or this anger and hatred and rage and bitterness and everything else was going to eat me alive. And that was whenever I decided to turn my cell into a monastery. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to in there. Someone told me whenever I walked in the door, they said, you have two choices. You can either let the cell become a living hell that you will die in, or you can turn the cell into a monastery and continue to work on yourself and grow and become what you were supposed to be anyway. And that was the path that I did to the best of my ability take, turned it into a monastery. You're, you're wrongfully convicted of murder. You're, you're, just you're a kid you're in your late teens on death row no one would begrudge you for holding resentment yet i I know from i'm part of a, a fellowship of men and women that help each other stay sober damien and um one of the things they say there is that resentment is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die exactly you could feel that inside you no doubt and, and not everyone there'll be a line around the block of people go damien that's no problem you can feel angry at these people you should be you're in prison for something you didn't do and yet you you're telling me that you felt this thing rising within you so much you're realizing this is going to take me out i have to do something about this exactly i mean that's exactly what it came down to so for me you know one of the things i realized is everyone in there focused on prison all the time you know, they focused on the environment, on their circumstances, on their case, on the situation, on if they were ever going to get out, when they were going to get out. And a lot of times they would go insane from it. So I realized you cannot live like that. You have to, no matter what environment you are in, you have to train yourself to be in the present moment because that's all you have. You know, anything else is illusion. I think it was Lao Tzu that said, that people who constantly live in the past are going to experience extreme amounts of depression. People who constantly live in the future are going to experience huge amounts of anxiety. And that is absolutely true. The only way that you can find peace, no matter if you're in prison, no matter if you're out here, whatever it is, the only way you are able to really truly find peace is by growing and training yourself to live your life in the present moment. And that's what I did to the best of my ability in there. And I think what, what happened for the most part, and this is kind of to describe, but, you know, essentially when you do that, once you reach a certain point in that process, you start to realize that you were not what you th thought you were your entire life, that everything that you think of as yourself is an illusion and it begins to um, disintegrate. Whenever that happens and you just experience yourself as consciousness, 
then you automatically start letting go of the bitterness. You automatically start letting go of the anger, the rage, all those sorts of things. So it's not like doing specific practices to let go of those things. It's by doing practices that allow you to see through the illusion of self that causes those things to happen almost as a side effect. So you're in this situation. You realize that the only way that you can free yourself from this thing that's closing in on you, like the trash compactor in Star Wars, is you've got to change. Exactly. What's the first thing you do? What's the first step you take? Well, the first step that I took was starting Zen training. Whenever you are executed, the only person who is allowed to be with you is what they call your spiritual advisor. No family, no friends, no attorney, any, just your spiritual advisor. Well, one of the men who was executed, before he was executed, had received ordination in Zen Buddhism. Uh, whenever they executed him, he was a Zen priest. The person who was with him at his execution was his teacher. His teacher was then allowed after the execution to come back on the death row and, you know, walk down the row and tell everyone there how he had died, what his last words had been, you know, how he held up during the execution. He and I started talking. He gave me his address. We started corresponding with each other. Eventually, he would become my teacher. I had this Zen master who would come back and forth from a temple in Japan to fly, you know, to this prison in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas to teach me. And as grateful as I was for that, and I would sit Zen meditation for hours a day sometimes, I still did not feel like I was getting out of it what I expected, you know, what I had read in books and had sort of heard that the effect it's supposed to have on your consciousness. I felt like I wasn't really experiencing that. So I decided to just drop the Zen practice and go back to what I loved most, which was ceremonial magic. You know, most people don't realize what ceremonial magic is. They think it's, you know, we're we're starting to get a little bit of an idea just because of the Oprah Winfrey stuff, like the secret or the law of attraction, that sort of thing. So people are getting slightly more familiar with the manifestation aspects of it, but they don't realize that what ceremonial magic is, is the Western path to enlightenment. It just uses iconography and symbolism and practices that are more familiar to us in the West. And whenever I started doing this, the way I try to describe to people how this works, what it does to you, is say, imagine if you had a glass of water and you let this water just sit until it begins to eventually stagnate and form a film on it, and it gets debris in it until you're left with a filthy glass of water. Now, if you took that glass of water and turned the faucet on in the sink and held the glass up under it and just let the water overflow and overflow and overflow, eventually, if you stood there long enough, you would end up with a clean glass of water again. This is the same thing we're doing in ceremonial magic. What we are doing is invoking energies of what we think of now in the West as archangels and angels. And that is not by any means anything that we think of really connected with like the Christian or Judaic traditions. These are the intelligences that embody all different sort of planetary energies, zodiacal energies, astrological energies. What we do is continually, as much as we can, invoke these energies into ourselves so that it flushes us out like that glass of water. And then eventually what happens is whenever it reaches down to the absolute deepest parts of your energetic anatomy, it starts to even flush out and break up what we think of as the ego. You know, we think of the ego as as something, 
you know, like when we use the word ego, we usually mean like someone who's full of themselves in some sort of way. And that's actually not what it means at all. Ego is anything that presents itself as a barrier between you and divine consciousness, between you and everyone else on earth. Anything that causes you to feel separate from the rest of creation technically is ego. So ceremonial magic, the point of it is to flush even ego out of yourself so that you experience yourself united with divinity. I don't like to use the word God because it it has so many you know, negative connotations, and it's been, you know, so much baggage connected to it here in the West. I actually prefer the word Empyrean, which is what Dante called sort of the mind of God. The point of ceremonial magic is to help us experience unity with the source of all creation. Just so people kind of get a bit of a a starting point from uh, where we go from here, Damien, when you talk about magic, and I pronounced it with a K, but people in the podcast, people don't know it's a K. Uh, We're talking magic with a K. It's not magic with a C. It's not someone making a deck of cards disappear. It's not a rabbit coming out of a hat. It's not soaring someone in half. Exactly. This is magic with a K. And you open the book by saying, first of all, you're already doing magic. Now, people listening might be going, I'm not doing magic, Damien. What are you talking about? So could you explain how people listening right now are already doing magic in their life? That's actually one of my favorite things to start with whenever I'm teaching classes is because it kind of comes as a shock to people. You know, science and and magic are starting to really overlap again. They did at one point in the past. You know, at one point, science wasn't what we think of it as today. You know, we think of science now as constantly racing into the future, discovering new knowledge. In the past, up until like the Renaissance or so, science was more concerned with our past. They thought that we weren't gaining more knowledge. We are losing knowledge. With every day that passes, things that ancient civilizations knew and understood are getting buried deeper and deeper under the sands of time. What science was about was uncovering this knowledge to help us sort of go back to a state of consciousness that we would say is before the fall. That's talked about in the book of Genesis in the Bible. You know, this this return to the state of pure consciousness. So science went about this by looking forward or looking outward. Magic went about this by looking inward. Well, science is now coming back around in quantum physics to the same way of thinking. You know, quantum physics, we now know that we exist in a quantum field and that we are communicating with this field at all times. Now, we don't communicate with it in words. We communicate with it in energy. So we know now that our brain and our heart both generate an electromagnetic field which interacts with the quantum field that we are in. We can train ourselves to send the messages to this field that we want to eventually become the material reality that we experience. And it's kind of mind-bendingly amazing how simple it can be. People think, surely magic can't be this simple. It's got to be more complicated. But for example, we know that, okay, in the, in, the, in the book of Thomas, Jesus is talking about how whenever you pray, whenever you're asking for something, basically try to feel the way you would feel if it had already come to pass. Well, whenever you're doing this, what you are doing is causing your heart to generate that electromagnetic field that then sends messages to the quantum field, which then eventually turns into reality. So we're doing this all the time without even 
you know, knowing that we're doing it. We are quite literally creating the reality that we experience. So the, I, I've got to like, I'm very much a science guy. I'm a big fan of evidence and I'm a big fan of things that, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated that what you're talking about challenges me, Damien. And w- what you're talking about has also very, very clearly worked for you. So I'm, I'm so interested in where it is that I am and where it is that you, what you've found and what you've put together and how it works and the explanation for it all. I'm, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by it, particularly with the, the affirmation that you and your wife both encountered daily. If I've yeah. got it right, I don't want to get it wrong. May I be home free from prison, living happily with my Laurie. May it come about in a way things in a way that brings harm to none and is for the good of all. And in no way let this reversal bring upon me or my loved ones any curse. You said that every day. Your wife said a similar thing every day. Yes. And within a year, you were walking away from prison. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, before I forget, I just want to say if you're yeah. interested more about the science aspect of yeah. it, about what oh, yeah. works and how it works, there's a, a man that has done some amazing work in this field. His name is Greg Braden. He's done a few different series. He's done a few different books. This guy is a scientist that goes into – he doesn't use the word magic, but whenever he's describing what happens in the way we interact with reality, he is describing the exact process that we're doing whenever we're doing magic. So for anybody who wants to know more about the hardcore science aspect of it, check out Greg Braden. That's exactly the kind of stuff that I'm fascinated with. Like, and in many ways, science started as magic. Science started as like, yes. how, how do we explain the world we live in? And, and as you mentioned before, the intersection is coming back together. And, and somewhere in our nearest future, I, I firmly believe that the exploration of consciousness and the communal oneness of us all as humans will someone will be like, there's some numbers on a page that prove it. All right, go. I totally believe that's going to happen, Damien. And that's not yeah. some sort of, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not woo woo, you know, kind of waiting for the wind to change yeah. when the cock crows, you know, I'm serious. like uh-huh. it's going it's to happen. I'm super excited about it. So thanks for mentioning Greg Braden. Now the affirmation thing was a thing that, that really kind of really blew me away. Because people may want to think, oh, you know, it's just a cat poster. It's just a thing you say out loud. It can't possibly work. What we were doing when we were doing that is you're using a kind of energy that there's a name for in every single culture in the world except ours. You know, for example, the Chinese call it chi, the Japanese call it ki, the Hebrews call it ruach, the Indians call it prana. We're the only ones who don't really have a name for it. And and I kind of like just using the word energy because it's non-denominational, but you are using a very real force. So what magic is, is techniques that enable us to pull in more and more and more of this force. And then you sort of stamp an intent on it. You, you program it the way we were just talking about by interacting with the quantum field. You program this energy and then release it to go do its job. Now, the, the, the great part is you don't have to know where it's going. You don't have to know how it's going to work or anything else. It, you just let it go and sort of forget about it and, and let it go do its thing. You know, and in hindsight, the thing I always point out to people about that affirmation that we were doing and about the energy work and, and the ritual work that we were doing every single day is looking back on it in hindsight, I mean, we got exactly what we asked for. You know, I didn't say, let me get found innocent. 
I didn't say, let me get a new trial. I didn't say, let them catch the person who actually did this. We just said, let me be home free from prison, living happily with Lori. That was exactly what we got in the form of an Alfred plea. So looking back on it, if we knew how well it was going to work, we may have changed the wording a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. So obviously I've, I've heard you know, affirmations you know, work before. I've, I've certainly done them myself i've i've i'm a big believer in manifesting somewhere if i put a message into my subconscious micro decisions through the day guide me towards that thing coming out into my my life and which has happened mm-hmm. to me and it's happened to many people i've had on this podcast when we're putting an affirmation together damien what's what's important to remember what's the best way to put it together honestly i think the number one thing to remember is your subconscious mind does not hear negatives So try to phrase whatever it is you're trying to bring about in a positive way. Like, for example, don't say, don't let me get sick. Instead, focus on the positive aspect of it and say, let me be healthy, free from all ailments and illnesses. Or, you know, don't say, don't let anything bad happen to me. Say instead, let me be safe, protected, happy and content as I go about my day. The main thing is just to, if you possibly can, always phrase it in a positive way because our subconscious mind reacts to that much, much more readily than it does any sort of negatives. A lot of times it's like it cancels negatives out. And I don't know why that's the case, but just from my own personal experience, that's what I've seen to be true. You, uh, you talk about the law of attraction, but you also talk about the law of attention. I'm not going to lie, man. I've got, at times, I've been diagnosed with OCD, and sometimes my brain can focus my attention on incredibly negative things. So when you talk about it, I'm like, well, shit, what am I bringing into reality? Because I constantly, sometimes the freight train of doom rolls through my head all day long. It's hard to kind of get out of the way. So, uh, you know, obviously, like, I've, my brain's different. It's kind of how I came out. But could you, could you talk a little bit about the law of attention and, 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 and why that's important in our lives? One of the examples that I always give in classes is, is whenever they're training race car drivers. You know, they tell race car drivers whenever they're teaching them how to drive, don't look at the wall. You know, keep your eyes focused on the other cars, stay focused on the track, on the finish line, whatever it is, but don't stare at the wall because if you do, sooner or later you're going to drive into it. It's one of those things, I can't remember who said this, but it's kind of become a catchy slogan now, uh, where attention goes, energy flows. It is completely and absolutely 100% true. You know, I always tell people, even if you don't want to have to do like these huge rituals that take hours of work, you can drastically, radically change your life just by placing your attention in different places. This is the concept that things like the really old European cathedrals were built on. You know, when you walk into these huge old European cathedrals and they have these giant high vaulted ceilings and immediately you look up whenever you walk in, you adjust your your posture, your head goes up, you look up, and even if it's for a split second, you think, wow, for that moment, you're not thinking about the fact that you've got to go buy cat food or that your light bill is due or anything else. <laughs> Even if it was just a split second, you just change your energy to be focused on something that fills you with awe and amazement and beauty and everything good and positive. You can do that in so many different ways. Think about, for example, when they say you are what you eat, that is 100% true, but it's not talking about just what we put into our mouths. 
It's talking about everything we consume, the movies we watch, the television shows we engage with, the music we listen to, the people we hang out with. Energy is very very contagious. If you start hanging out with people who do nothing but complain all the time, before you know it, you're going to be doing the exact same thing. So one of the most important things in life, even if you're not going to do like I do and, and you know, do like a four-hour ritual, change the, the way you focus your attention and you can change your entire life just that easy. What's really interesting about that, Damien, is we're living in a time, like, I don't even want to can think about what it must have been like to essentially step out of a time machine when I got out of prison and suddenly there's this world of super connected smartphones and the hyperspeed broadband and that must have been an avalanche of acceptance to deal with at that time. But we're, we're dealing with these devices that are hacking our attention so completely and our poor little brains are up against super powered AI that is feeding us just algorithmically just hours and hours of content that, that makes us keep staring into our phones. And to be honest, content that makes us angry because that's what we react to. Where do you see the power of attention and what, how careful do we have to be around how much time we stare at these news feeds of just things that make us feel kind of cranky? I think stuff like, you know, like the news feeds, things like that, I completely eliminate was out of my life a while back. Here in the U.S. right now, I don't know if the other countries pay as much attention to it or not, but you cannot turn on any news program. You can't, you know, look at anything going on on Twitter or any other social media outlet that's feeding you news without it being nonstop Trump, you know, Trump, 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 Trump. And as soon as you start talking to someone in conversation just on the street here, that's the first thing that's going to come up. Everything is about Trump. And I noticed the more people were doing it, the angrier they were becoming. And I thought, why are you focusing on this? If you're obsessing over whatever crappy thing he said today, there's nothing you can do about it. Stop looking at it. Start putting your attention on something that's going to make you happy, that's going to make you grow as a person. And I'm not saying live with your head in the sand. I'm just saying, you know, spend more time. You know, when you know, when you see an article that says Trump just said this stupid thing, you know, the second you click on it, you're going to get more angry about it. So don't click on it. Instead, I, I used to say that I hated the Internet, that it was like this huge waste of time. And then I realized the Internet is actually pretty amazing. You know, when you use it for constructive purposes, for research and looking, you know, for me, a huge part, for example, of my spiritual practice and my life, because to me, they're the same thing. My life and my spiritual practice are so deeply integrated in mind that there is no difference. But it's all about, you know, ancient Sumerian culture and, and practices that, that took place back then. So I can spend hours sometimes getting lost in, in websites about, you know, ancient Sumerian cultures and, and stories and things that were going on back then and looking at artifacts and statues. And it makes me feel, once again, that sense of awe and wonder. The same thing, we don't have to necessarily just constantly feed into the things that make us angry and miserable. It's okay to step away from that. I guess so many of us, we are, we are sucked in at the promise of, of photos of our nieces and nephews or uh, our friends on holidays. But what we're actually exposed to is uh, things that can really change our mood in quite negative ways, because that's the way these things are designed. We react more to things that make us upset and we share things that make us upset. Therefore, we spend longer on them. And when you talk about 
the incredible power of attention and how that can create things into your reality, it's a dangerous place to play. Yeah, it's a dangerous place to play. I I wonder if that isn't creating some sort of a a self-fulfilling spiral of making the world we live in, the day-to-day, the people that you meet in the street who are upset and angry. Would they be that upset and angry if they weren't spending so much time focusing their attention on this thing? I wonder. Well, I think that's a huge part of it, but there's also, I think, another aspect to it that we don't really take into account, and that's, once again, going back to ego. You know, part of magic, yes, part of it is about manifesting a better life, the life we want to live, but by far, the vast majority of magic, the point and purpose of it is the transcendence of ego. So, you know, we have to, the uh, motto of the Golden Dawn, which was one of the early orders of magicians, was the aim of religion, but the method of science. You know, they wanted to dissect things and learn what works, how it works, why it works, and how we can make it work better. So that's kind of the way that, that I started approaching, like, the ego, wanting to know how it works and, and why it makes us so miserable. And what you realize is that, you know, like I said a while ago, ego is anything that causes a sense of separation between you and creation, you and divinity. So a lot of times what ego likes, ego loves for us to be pissed off. Ego loves for us to look at things that are angry because it gives us something to be against. And the more against something you are, the more a sense of separation that engenders. So what's happening a lot of times is by focusing on all of these things that we're against and that are making us so angry, we are strengthening Ego, which makes us suffer even more. You know, everyone in this world is going to experience pain, but pain and suffering are two different things. Pain is an instantaneous biochemical reaction that takes place inside our anatomy. Suffering, on the other hand, is the inability to let go of that pain after we've experienced it. When you suffer, what that means is you are going back constantly thinking about it, dwelling on it, or projecting into the future about whenever you might encounter that thing again, or whenever that thing might get worse, whatever it is, it completely takes you out of the present moment. So a lot of that stuff, what we're doing, even if it doesn't manifest in some horrendous way in an external you know, manifestation, it's still going to have internal repercussions. It's going to strengthen and thicken the denseness of our ego, which makes us suffer even more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you were in... The solitary confinement, Damien, um, I can't begin to imagine the pain and, and suffering that you were dealing with. And I know you talk about visualization 
as a way to help you escape uh, from that. Could you describe a little bit about how you kind of discovered visualization and, and maybe in some ways that you used it during your time on death row? You know, it, it's one of those things that I'm always a, a little bit still to this day, a little bit shy and wary of talking about because okay. a lot of it can sound kind of strange to people who don't have experiences with these sorts of practices. But, you know, visualization, one of the main rituals that you start off learning in ceremonial magic is called the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. And what you're doing is a lot of visualization, a lot of breath work, and you vibrate certain mantras. But the whole point of this is it sort of acts like sage. You know, when people say when they're saging an environment, they say they're getting rid of negative energy. What you're doing is using visualization, breath work, and certain chants to push all negative energy out of a space. So when I was in prison, I was doing that a lot because, I mean, think about the environment that I was in. You know, I was housed in the same building with men who had literally taken hatchets to old women because they wanted their social security checks. You know, people who had raped children, people who were, had done the most heinous things you could possibly imagine. And like I said a while ago, energy is contagious. I did not want that stuff seeping into me. So I would practice this technique called the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram several times a day, over and over and over. Well, part of this process involves visualizing archangels. And like I said a while ago, archangels are not what we think they are now. They are not blonde-haired, blue-eyed people with wings on their back. These are intelligences connected with star systems that go all the way back to ancient Samaria. Well, you're visualizing these things over and over and over every day. And, you know, in the beginning, you're always thinking, is this really working? Is this really doing anything? Or am I just playing mind games with myself? You know, it's just some sort of mental masturbation that's going to make me feel a little bit better about the environment that I'm in. What changed all of that for me? And this is the part that I talk about where, you know, it, it's a little bit difficult to talk about because people will think, well, that sounds crazy. There came a point in the process when for the very first time I actually perceived one of these intelligences. The only way I can articulate it is, is to say, I saw an angel. And whenever I say saw, I am not talking about with my eyes because we are utilizing parts of our anatomy that they don't correspond to physical senses. So it's very difficult to articulate exactly how you're perceiving it. The only word I can use is saw. Well, it did not look anything like what we would expect it to be. The only way I can even come close to getting across what it was that I perceived was to say that I saw two black triangles. The thing is, I knew to the core of my being that this intelligence that I was perceiving was just as sentient and aware of me as I was of it. This thing was looking at me. It was an experience that I will remember for the rest of my life because from that point on, I never, ever again doubted whether magic was going to work or not. People will say to me now, I don't believe in magic. And what they actually mean is they've just never tried it. They've never practiced it for any considerable amount of time because it works whether you believe in it or not. It's like electricity. You know, you're working with a very real energy. So for me, the process of visualization, breath work, and certain mantras was what caused me to have this experience. When you experience something like that, it changes the way you view reality for the rest of your life. You know, you no longer have to have faith or hope 
or belief that there is some sort of divine intelligence guiding the evolution of humanity. You can always look back on the time when you came in contact with part of it and experienced it on a firsthand basis. You know, like I said, it's one of those things that sounds crazy, but it's also for me one of the most absolute life-changing moments of my entire existence. I, I don't doubt that you experienced this. I can't say that I saw things, um, but I did some work when I, I used to live in Los Angeles there for about 10 years, and I did some work with this really interesting psychologist who, ex, who did work on the edges of where psychology met kind of mysticism, and we did very intense breathing work, and I almost like the observing self would speak to me using my mouth which was really weird. Yeah. I, I wrote, I wrote yeah. a book about what happened to me and how I, and I, I describe it in my book. But what you're describing reminds me of um, our consciousness is a very strange thing. And, and we, particularly in modern Western uh, technological culture, developed society, I, I feel we don't use as much of it as maybe we used to in maybe an ancient tribal society. Yet you experience this without imbibing anything into your body. Uh, it reminded me of a story of a friend of mine who traveled to Peru and with a shaman went through an ayahuasca ceremony and saw the face of his unborn child and she spoke to him. And then four months later, when she came out, like, that's who I saw. That's the girl. And she told me her name. And yep. her name is, you know, such and such. Now, and, and he's a rational man. He's a clever man. He's a very intelligent man. I wouldn't expect him to make this shit up, you know? <laughs> so yeah. There's definitely things to be discovered. There's little gateways and little glimpses of like what you're describing. I feel that we as a society and a community are yet to explore. There's this further frontier that this shit is not, there's, it's there. There's something in our consciousness that we have yet, maybe we forgot how to access as a, as a community. Yep. That's what ceremonial magic is about. It's about teaching us to do that again. A lot of people now are taking like ayahuasca or, or DMT or things of that nature that help them do it. But ceremonial magic, the whole point of it is to teach us to do these things without having to rely on any outward you know, drug or anything else. Talking about prison and how traumatic it was, this will sound bizarre to some people, but for me, it was just as traumatic to get out of prison as it was when I went into prison. When I got out of prison, you know, not only was there this whole new world of learning how to use cell phones and ATM machines and computers and all this sort of stuff, but I had been in solitary confinement for almost a decade. I went from solitary confinement for almost 10 years to being on the streets of Manhattan literally overnight, and it shattered something in me in a way that I will never be able to make anyone understand. You know, when I walked out of prison, the day before I walked out, I was reading about five books a week on average. I would just plow through books. The day after I got out, I could no longer read. I would read the same page of the same book over and over and over and not be able to retain what I had read when I got to the bottom of the page. You know, I would reintroduce myself to the same person two or three times, even after I had went out to dinner with them because I could not retain their face, their voice, you know, everything just overloaded me and broke me to the point of having a nervous breakdown. What started to heal me, brought me back to what I am now, is once again magic. And, and it, there were so many amazing experiences I had that really defined and shaped the course of, of what I am and what my life is now. You know, whenever I got out and I'm trying to, to recover from this stuff, I went from the day I walked out of prison doing eight hours of magic a day 
to not even being able to do it eight minutes whenever I walked out. That was how broken I was. And I had to gradually build my way back up to just being able to do the things that I did when I was in prison. Well, part of that, once I got to the point, you know, I crossed a certain threshold where you're working with tremendous amount of energies again. And and that was what triggered the experience of the complete and absolute dissolution of myself. I literally thought I was dying. I experienced myself disintegrating as if someone had thrown a handful of dirt into a tornado or a hurricane, just shredded, gone. That was how I experienced everything that I thought I was. You literally think you are ceasing to exist. You are coming to an end. You know, when we think of things like these enlightenment experiences that people talk about in the East, we think they're all going to be happy and joyous and blissful. No, no, you are, your ego is dying. Yourself is dying. It is a terrifying experience. While I was experiencing this for a few days, eventually it was like something clicked into place and I realized, well, wait a minute, if I'm disintegrating, then who is watching the disintegration process? Who is, who is watching the self come apart? Whenever I had that clear moment, that was whenever you sort of, in magic, we call it crossing the abyss because we say there is an abyss between the ego state of consciousness and that higher state of consciousness. We can't make that transfer on our own from identifying from the ego to identifying with the higher self. We need divine help to carry us across this abyss, this chasm. Well, the second that that happened, it was like the, the terror stopped. The mm. post-traumatic stress disorder was completely gone. I could read again. I didn't have any of the problems that I was having whenever I got out. But it also, the second that the terror was gone, it was almost as if a storm had come to an end. And the only way I can describe it is to say that there was complete and absolute peace. And I saw the nighttime sky. And across the sky, I saw a word spelled out. And it was a word I had no idea what meant. I had never heard it before, had no frame of reference for it. It was almost as if the wind was blowing across the stars is the only way I can describe how it formed. And it said E-N-L-I-L. Enlil was not a name, meant absolutely nothing to me whatsoever. But the whole thing was so it shook me to the core of my being that it did not even occur to me for a few days afterwards. I can Google it. So, and this is what I mean about how amazing the internet is. I started looking into this and it and turns out it's a name that's linked all the way back to ancient Samaria. This is, was one of the highest names that they used for describing divinity. I knew whenever I saw that, whenever I read what it was, that it was sort of like, my higher self leading me from one step to the next to the next, and that I was supposed to start invoking this intelligence the same way that I had been invoking the archangel and angelic intelligences and energies before. Whenever I started doing that, you know, it led me from one thing to the next to the next to the next until it was almost like going on the most amazing adventure that I'd ever been on in my entire life. No theme park comes close. No movie comes close. It gave meaning to my existence. I realized that we, 
live like a species with amnesia. We don't remember where we came from. We don't remember where we're supposed to be going or how we're supposed to be getting there. And the more I went down this path, the more I started to understand all of these things until, you know, there were, it was like there was no more room in me for sorrow. There was no more room in me for brokenness. There was no more room in me for despair or post-traumatic stress disorder. There was just amazement at the way everything in my life had come together. And, and now when I look back on it, you know, I will still have people come to me and they'll say, you know, I'm sorry for what you went through. I know it was a horrible thing. It's hard for people to comprehend or grasp this now, but I am thankful for everything that I went through. If I would not have been forced to go through everything that I went through, it would not have forced me to learn everything that I've learned and, and discover everything that I've discovered and experience everything that I've experienced since. I am thankful for everything that happened to me. Damien, that's extraordinary to hear. Entire cultures and nation states are built on hundreds of years of resentment. They only exist because that country once had a war with us and we will always hate them and that's how we define ourselves. That you have found a place of, uh, dare I say it, gratitude for what it is that you went through is, that's inspirational, man. Well, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's absolutely 100% true. The way I look back and see those things now is that they didn't happen to me. They happened for me. You know, these, it, it was like my higher self orchestrated my entire life right down to what I thought at the time was hell, orchestrated in a way to bring me exactly where I would want and need to be in my life. Man, that's. That's an incredible. Anybody going through stuff right now, whether it be with their ex or their job or their work or their dad or, or whatever, to hear you say that, well, I certainly feel like, oh, yeah, my, my problems aren't really that bad and I really should be grateful for what I'm getting out of this and the lesson I can get from this. <laughs> so, I, mean, I don't think like people listening, they, they may not have time to do eight hours a day or, or as you describe what your practice is now, four hours a day, but clearly after those that moment of, of break in the in solitary confinement where you realized you had to make a change and that moment where you had, uh, as you mentioned, disintegrated and you had an opportunity to rebuild yourself into what you are at this moment as we speak. If someone's looking for like, okay, what are some practices? I may not be drawing pentagrams and, uh, you know, encanting ancient Kabbalistic verse, but they may not be ready for that. What are some things that people can do or begin to build into their day to, to start making shifts towards the sort of stuff you're talking about? Well, I think, you know, number one, like we were talking about a while ago, is just start looking at your daily routine. Look at how much time you spend engaging in things that make you miserable in some sort of way. Like if you spend two hours a day reading news about what Trump is doing, maybe start cutting that down and start focusing on a little more of what makes you happy. You know, if you start doing that, you're going to be less miserable automatically. You know, listen to music that inspires you. You know, not something that's going to drag you down or, or make you even more miserable. Movies, you know, whenever you go to movies, try to go see something that whenever you come out of it, you're going to feel like going out and doing something, accomplishing something. Everything that we're doing the entire reason that we're here, I think Beethoven said it best. He said the entire reason for man's existence is to approach divinity as closely as we possibly can, gather its rays, and then disseminate them back out to mankind. 
Try to find a way to do that, whether it's painting or drawing or writing stories or paying it forward in the line at the coffee shop. Whatever it is, just try to do little things where you are consciously and deliberately trying to do something good. The more you do that, the better you're going to feel. So that, that's not even doing any kind of breath work or doing any kind of uh, meditation. That's exactly. Just simply, yeah. It's just like common sense. Yeah. You know, but really, when it comes down to, I, I cannot stress it enough, is the main, you know, we call it the philosopher's stone of magic. The very base, core, bottom line practice is the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. If you put enough time and energy into memorizing it and, and you know, doing it correctly, it will only take you between five and 15 minutes, if you really want to drag it out, to do this every day. This one practice can do amazing, miraculous things to your consciousness. It really is, like they call it, the philosopher's stone of magic. I cannot, cannot recommend it enough. You know, it's the one thing that whenever I'm doing classes and workshops and talks, I, I just sort of hammer, hammer this thing home over and over and over telling people this will change your life in ways that you can't even imagine. You know, I, I received ordination in the Rinzai Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism when I was in prison. That was the same tradition that used to train the samurai in ancient Japan. I still did not get as much out of years of that training and practice as I did out of weeks of doing the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. People hear the word pentagram and, you know, they may kind of worry. They may fear, like, now someone's going to play a Judas Priest song backwards and I'm, I'm going to want to do horrible <laughs> things, you know. There's a lot of fear around that word. You know, Motley Crue put that on their album cover because they wanted to make people freak out, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it is one of the – that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is kind of to try to demystify it and take away some of the – you know, scare tactics and the smear campaign that's been put around it. You know, the word penta just means five. It means yeah. five-pointed star. And and what you're representing with this five-pointed star are the four elements of nature with spirit of, or, or divinity above them, earth, air, fire, water, and spirit. You know, you are literally drawing upon the energy that is behind certain constellations and star systems in our universe that are like – you know, forms of energy that are higher than what we would find on Earth. They are celestial energies in order to improve your life. There is nothing even remotely dark or scary or, or anything else about the pentagram. You know, that's one of those, a lot of times when people hear about the pentagram or they see a picture of it, the first thing they think is, oh, that's satanic. It's Satanism in some sort of way. I always point out how Satanists generally tend to be not very creative people. All they do are take sacred symbols from other cultures and traditions and turn them upside down. You know, like, so, oh, the cross, take the cross and turn it upside down. The pentagram, take that and turn it upside down. It's just like a, a misuse of a incredibly ancient and sacred symbol. And for some reason, it became popular in people's minds as being attached to something dark or scary. But there's absolutely nothing dark or scary about it at all. Mate, when you're in, in prison and when I read your book, it did. It reminded me. I'm sure you've had this comparison before. It did remind me of Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning because you you did find through your own experience a lot of very similar you know, realizations about what it is to be human and, and human consciousness when you're in a state of complete powerlessness. What role did yes, the magic and the rituals clearly helped you get through the day, 
what role did hope play? You know what? I, I honestly tried to, and this will sound counterintuitive, maybe even bizarre, but I tried to eliminate as much of hope from myself as I possibly could, because I would see people in there that lived on hope. You know, they would hope that one day they're going to be out of prison. You know, that was all they thought about. Am I ever going to be out of here? When am I ever going to be out? And those are the people who would go insane the quickest. And when I say go insane, I mean literally go insane. You know, for example, there was one guy who snapped, went berserk and started screaming about how the devil was in his cell. And he started punching the walls with both fists until both his hands were just busted open and bloody. They just take him out, bandage his hands up and throw him back in his cell. I saw that when you don't live in the present moment, when you're constantly hoping for the future in an environment or a situation like that, bad things tended to happen. And that's not to say that I didn't ever look at a time, you know, as hard as this is to describe, once Lori came into my life, Lori is my wife. We've been married for, you know, uh, 20 years now. We've been together since 1996. Once she came into my life, as hard as this is to, to understand, I immediately felt safe, even on death row. I knew from that moment on that, yes, things might get really hard. They might get really dark. They might get really bad. These people might beat me. They might starve me, but they cannot kill me now. When we're together, it made me feel this sense of divine protection. So I felt on some level that there would be a time when I was out of there. You know, it was like something that I just knew and accepted. So I didn't constantly think about it and drive myself insane, but it was something that I sort of knew was going to happen on a soul level. And that was also part of what kept me sane and kept me going in there. I had something to focus on other than those four walls where I was, other than the garbage I was eating, other than the guards who were trying to beat the hell out of me. I had a world that we were creating together. We did not look at it like, you know, one day in the future, we're going to be together. We looked at it as we are together now. We are already together. We may be, you know, she may be on that side of the wall and I'm on this side of the wall, but we're still together already. So most of what I was focusing on was the books that we were reading together, conversations that we had been having, maybe things that we had been watching on TV. You know, that was my world. That was my life. My life with Lori and ceremonial magic. Those were the things that propped me up and kept me going whenever I thought that I could not go anymore. Because you, the two of you had created something to focus on that was bigger than the situation that you were exactly. in. You had that part of you was able to know that uh, far away outside the prison walls, here's this woman and she has a feeling for me. I have a feeling for her. And with this relationship is is more important to me than the relationship between me and these guards or me and the lawyer or me and the state. I think in a way it was even bigger and more profound than that, though. You know, it wasn't like, you know, just a feeling like anytime you've been in a relationship out here, it's different. I don't know how to describe it. it it's like I knew that a huge part of my destiny had just clicked into place. It was another one of those those moments in my life when I felt a kind of divine intervention reach into my life through the form of this relationship. 
Oh, man, that's ex- that's extraordinary. I, I can definitely relate to that. There was a uh, I, I met my my wife when I was I was very sick and I was uh, I was experiencing um, passive and active suicidal ideation. I was on a bunch of antipsychotics and and I met this person that gave me an idea that oh, there's something else, there's something else than what I'm going through. How about I focus on that? I wasn't mm-hmm. in solitary confinement, man. I wasn't in anywhere near what you were in, but I can I get it. I get it. And what's interesting is when I do when I do live gigs, my wife's name is Audrey. When I do live gigs, people come to me after the show and go, and a, a woman will point to this point. This is Brendan. He's my Audrey. And it's interesting. <laughs> so many people who have found themselves in trouble that's bigger than they can handle will find a pathway to transcending that when another person comes in and they can form a relationship that exists beyond it. Uh, I'm grateful that we as humans have that capacity because I'd have been lost without it. I do think it's it's very similar to in Hinduism what they call bhakti yoga. You know, in, in bhakti yoga, a person will choose an aspect of divinity that represents love to them, and they will try to, to the best of their ability, stir up as much intense fierce love for this aspect of divinity as they possibly can until eventually what happens is the walls of their their psyche start to disintegrate and they merge with the deity it is love it is literally love that allows them to merge with divinity and i think we can do the exact same thing with another person when love is strong enough man that's beautiful you you mentioned you read five books a week you uh you, you read an enormous amount when you were in prison. You studied incredibly deeply many different religions and traditions. Uh, you explored Buddhism and Kabbalism and mystical, you know, ancient Sumerian and the kind of traditional practices. Did you find a commonality between them? Have we just found different names for the same thing throughout all of these uh, religions and practices? That is exactly what we have done. It, it all goes back to the very cradle of human civilization, to ancient Mesopotamia, and what started there, what was given birth to there. I honestly believe, I have come to believe through experiences that I've had myself, that somehow some way back during that time period, humanity brushed up against a higher intelligence that set our evolution in motion, that passed on to us the fact that, yes, divinity is real, and yes, there is a path to us being able to experience it, not just believe it, not just hope it's true, but to have direct experience with it. And I think the techniques and rituals that allow us to do that have been passed down through every religion on the face of the earth. They're just encoded in stories. And even in art, you know, I think art, for the most part, up until very recently, art was not something that people just bought because it matched their couch, you know, because it was going (laughs) to look good in their living room. Art was information about these techniques and these practices that were encoded in a way to be interpreted by future civilizations and cultures, even if that culture's language had died out, if no one could read you know, the writing from back in that time period anymore, you can still see the artwork and recognize the symbolism in it. I believe wholeheartedly, completely, that every single religion, spiritual system on the face of the earth goes all the way back to ancient Samaria and that 
it's just sort of slightly evolved over time. Damien, there's, there's more to cover in this conversation than, than we've got time for, but you've, I'm sure you've definitely given people a lot to go and explore by themselves. There's, there's two books. There's High Magic, The Guide to Spiritual Practice to Save My Life on Death Row, and there's The Course in High Magic, which is the other book that, that you just put out, was most definitely um, interesting. I, I'm grateful, Damien, and you, you do say this quite often through the book, like you don't have to do all of this. Take what works for you. Do a little bit of it. Exactly. Find it out. Yeah, you're not excluding people who don't want to go the whole hog. You're just like, yeah, what, what's going to work for you? And, I, and I'm also really grateful to hear that you had a, a beautiful meditative present experience on the back of a bicycle. As someone who loves bicycles and riding bicycles, that made me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> to me, bicycle biking feels the, like the closest thing I can imagine to flying. Yeah, man. I love riding bikes. Well, mate, if you're ever down in Sydney, it would be an honor to take you for a spin. Uh, I'd love to yeah man come on down Damien it's an absolute honor to speak with you thank you so much for making the time to do this today Rachel my producer um, who put this together actually sent me photos of a benefit gig that she put on for you in 1996 I think she put on a benefit gig for you in Sydney uh, some you know 23 years ago man tell her I said thank you I will absolutely tell her you said thank you um Mate, it's extraordinary to speak with you today, and I'm really grateful that we're going to be able to share with the people who listen um, the lessons that you have to teach us today. Thank you so much, Damien. Thank you so much for having me. That was Damien Eccles. His latest book is called High Magic, M-A-G-I-C-K a guide to the spiritual practices that saved my life on death row. It's a very, very interesting read. He's an interesting guy, as you've no doubt heard, and there is much, much more online if you want to discover more about him. But you can start at his Twitter feed, D-A-M-I-E-N-E-C-H-O-L-S, Damien Eccles on Twitter. Um, If you are off to explore more about what he preaches, excellent. I hope you find what you're after. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rachel Barrett, the producer of my life. Without you, there is no me. Um, There is no my career. And I'm so grateful that we could put the show together together. Yeah. Andy Ma, you tried so hard to salvage my audio feed. I'm sorry I couldn't get there for you, but thank you for trying. Andy's my audio producer. And Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, you are a legend. Uh, Keep being you, Mike. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you on Friday. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 